I really couldn't afford the lessons. So I would kind of hang over the rail and watch them give lessons. Um, you know, one of my sort of memories of all of that is I showed up for one of the riding lessons and I had Timberland boots on and, you know, probably off the rack chaps, which didn't really fit. Um, and I thought I was all ready for my lesson and, and you know, they were like, oh, you know, you don't really have the right shoes and you don't really have like the right look going on. You know, you, you kind of look a mess. Um, and it was this big thing about needing paddock boots. And this wasn't from Judy. This was one of her assistants was helping me. And I went home and I thought, God, I don't have the right shoes. But, you know, the right shoes were probably another $150, which I didn't really have. So I kind of avoided lessons for a little longer. And then there was another assistant there named uh, Jane uh, Schaffer. And she said, I'll teach in Timberlands or whatever you got. Just make sure that shoe's got a heel on it. And she taught me a few times, and Judy taught me a few times, and that's how it began. Welcome to Practical Horseman's Podcast, a show featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and this week's episode is with top equitation and hunter trainer, Andre Dignelli. Andre has been producing national hunter, jumper, and equitation champions for over 20 years, over the last decade, Andre has produced an impressive roster of medal-winning Big Eck riders, including Lily Keenan, who won the 2011 USHJA International Hunter Derby Championship, and the 2013 ASPCA McClay National Championship. He has also worked closely with riders who are now at the top of the sport, including Tori Colvin, Reed Kessler, Kirsten Coe, and Kent Farrington. Andre came from a non-horsey family and, along with his two brothers, convinced his parents to move to suburban New York. They eventually talked their father into building a makeshift barn where the boys soon started their own boarding business. When Andre was 15, he took his thoroughbred gelding to Judy Richter's Coker Farm. Under Judy's guidance, Andre qualified for the U.S. Equestrian Team Show Jumping Talent Search Finals in 1985 at age 18, which he won riding Judy's retired Grand Prix jumper, Dark Sonnet. Andre credits this win for forever changing his trajectory. Andre went on to work for Judy as an assistant trainer, and he rode her jumper Gaelic in two World Cup finals and in the 1991 Pan American Games, where they earned a team bronze medal and placed fourth individually. That same year, he co-trained Peter Lutz to wins in both the McClay and the USCT finals. Andre decided to focus on teaching, and in 1994 with his brother Michael, he bought Heritage Farm in New York and turned it into a state-of-the-art facility. Andre has always been incredibly driven, and his decades-long success can be attributed to his hard work, determination, attention to detail, and his preparation skills. I caught up with Andre at the end of October at the Washington International Horse Show. We chatted about how he worked up through the ranks and made a name for himself in the horse world, how he built his business into what it is today, and to what he attributes his success. But first, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Cosequin. Cosequin is the number one veterinarian-recommended joint health supplement brand. With Cosequin Original, Cosequin Optimized with MSM, Cosequin ASU, and Cosequin ASU+, 
there is a formula suited for all horses at any stage of life. Cosequin's $10 rebate on ASU and ASU Plus large tubs gives you back an extra $10 on their most advanced formulas. Learn more at cosequinequine.com. When performance matters, choose Cosequin. Now let's jump right into this episode as Andre shares how he and his two brothers caught the horse bug. Um, my brothers are nine and ten years older than I am, and they convinced my parents to move from New Rochelle, which is sort of a suburb of New York City, uh, to rural Cortland, New York. Um, it was a big move for our family. Uh, my parents purchased five acres, which we thought was a sprawling piece of property at the time um, because my my older brothers had decided that they really wanted to have horses um, and it was really foreign to us and we started out with some horses in the backyard I was only five or six at the time um, and they were sort of doing it and uh, you know I kind of followed them around a little bit and next thing you know I was up on a pony and I liked it right away and that's really it just started from a real backyard you know, kind of situation. We didn't really know what we were getting into. Um, and to think that it mushroomed into this is kind of incredible. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about how their backyard business worked with boarding horses? So there was a building in the back of the property. Um, to say it was a barn would be a real stretch. Um, we constructed some makeshift stalls, which uh, my dad helped with the carpentry. So it was very sort of rough. Um, we had three, three sort of awkwardly shaped stalls there. And then we made a few more stalls off the other side of the building. And we took in a few boarders right away. And that sort of helped pay for the expenses. Um, and so from a very early age, getting up before school and going out and sort of feeding the horses and caring for them and putting them outside was a part of the routine. Um, interestingly enough, for probably the first time in 30 years, I drove by that property just last week. Really? Yeah. And pulled in the driveway and just took a good look around and just thought, wow, like, this is where it all started mm -hmm. for us. Um, and so on some level, I was really running a business from you know, probably the age of like 10. Mm -hmm. um, we had borders, and that helped sort of you know, finance my riding. Um, you know, we went after school to Agway and got the hay and shavings and, you know, it's just this whole thing. And I, I, I often have this reoccurring dream that I've overslept and I forgot to take care of the horses. Um, but that's how it began. And at what point did riding become something serious for you? You know, I always kind of knew. Like once I, you know, I was sort of shown, you know, this side of it with the competition and the horses. Um, I liked it right away, and from a very early age, I was building barns with Lego sets and Lincoln Logs, and I just sort of visualized this sort of reality that has become my life, you know, that I was, I wanted to have a barn, and I wanted to have the ring and the jumps, um, and so that was just sort of the vision, you know, from a very, very early age, and I would say somewhere probably around 12 or so, I, I think I started to realize that I was good at this, you know, that I had a, I, I loved the horses, but I, I probably had some sort of feel for it. Um, and I would go to local horse shows and I would do well. Um, and it just sort of motivated me. And, you know, then all my 
energy was sort of you know focused on this. Um, so I would say early on, you know, that I, I kind of thought, hey, this might be something for me. Um, it never felt like work, so I was like, all right, that's that's a good good feeling. Um, but I just remember that that building those barns and painting barrels as jumps and sort of. I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was preparing myself for what was to come, yeah. and um, you know, and it, it's worked out very well for me. And then you you brought your thoroughbred Silverado to Julie Richter's farm. Um, what was training with Judy like? What did you learn from her? So for many years, I rode with my brother Michael, um, who I'm in business with now, um, and we knew uh, at a certain point that we needed outside help. You know, we needed somebody to kind of, you know, we would take the train in and go to Madison Square Garden and watch and, you know, kind of see what the higher level looked like. We used to go, there was a show called the Orange County Fair and I can remember watching Rodney Jenkins show there. And mm. so we tried to expose ourselves to what we thought was the higher level. And, you know, we, we had big dreams. You know, we didn't know that we didn't fit in and we didn't belong, and, um, but we kind of wanted it. And, you know, we, we rode with a few different local people. Um, and we found ourselves uh, knocking on Judy's door, and she had this amazing farm in Bedford, which wasn't that far uh, from where I was growing up, and she saw something, or, or she was generous, you know, she said, you know what, you guys have your own truck and trailer, if you want to rent that stall down behind the shed there for $200 a month, and take care of your own horse, and pay for your own lessons, um, uh, you know, I, I'm up for that, like, if you want to do that. And that, that's how it started. Um, you know, and the $200 was all we could really afford, so I, I really couldn't afford the, the lessons. So I would kind of hang over the rail and watch them give lessons. Um, you know, one of my sort of memories of all of that is I showed up for one of the riding lessons, and I had Timberland boots on and, you know, probably off-the-rack chaps, which didn't really fit. Um, and I thought I was all ready for my lesson and, and you know, they were like, oh, you know, you don't really have the right shoes and you don't really have like the right look going on. You know, you, you kind of look a mess. Um, and it was this big thing about needing paddock boots. And this wasn't from Judy. This was one of her assistants was helping me. And I went home and I thought, God, I don't have the right shoes. But, you know, the right shoes were probably another $150, which I didn't really have. So I kind of avoided lessons for a little longer. And then... There was another assistant there named uh, Jane uh, Schaffer, and she said, I'll teach in Timberlands or whatever you got. Just make sure that shoe's got a heel on it. And she taught me a few times, and Judy taught me a few times, and that's how it began. And then um, you ended up leaving college to come back and work for Judy full-time. What kind of led you to that decision? So a real turning point in my career and my happenings at Coker, early into my relationship with Judy, the barn was going off to Lake Placid, which was a big deal, and everybody was going, and I was staying home. I, I'd only been riding there a few months, and she said, you know, you know, if you help out, we're you know, a little short-staffed while we're at Lake Placid. If you help out and you know, do some chores around here and ride some extra horses and do a few stalls, that'd be really appreciated. So... I mean, little did I know that those two weeks I basically was going to muck the entire barn and ride every horse in the building. But thankfully, I did it. And I probably did it with a smile. And I think Judy probably checked in a few times, and I think someone gave me a, you know, a thumbs-up kind of review. 
And when she came home from Lake Placid, she said, you know, it didn't go unnoticed that you, you know, you came here every day and you mucked all the stalls. And, and I think that was a real turning point. You know, I think she said, you know what, he's not going to go away. Um, you know, Timberlands or not, he's sort of hanging in here. And, you know, when I needed her to loan me a horse for the USCT finals, five days out, and really it was the necessity that my horse wasn't going to jump the water. It wasn't like this vision, like he's going to win the class if we make, you know, if we do this. But I think she just thought, you know, God, he deserves a chance maybe to get around the course. And, you know, I rode the horse a couple of times and, you know, I made the most of my opportunity. And those three days changed sort of the course of my, that's my story. Um, and then, you know, and then that did something. It ignited a spark. In, in, in me and in people around me and some opportunities happened. Um, all of a sudden people knew my name and I just thought, God, this is like that whole sort of, you know, if you dream it, you know, it can happen. You know, it seems really cliche, but I, I without a doubt, I believe that my winning that event has changed my course. It made me believe in myself. Um, it made others believe in me. For sure, I had to do a lot more after that. But that, that got my foot in the door. And um, it started my journey, you know, with, with Judy at Coker. And so then I was offered basically a job um, when I wasn't in school, part-time. And so I was, you know, going to school and then, you know, racing over and riding some horses and giving some lessons, and I, I knew that I loved it, and I knew that this really was what I wanted to do. Um, and I think probably my second summer, as the summer was winding down, I told my parents, hey, I'm going to go you know, sign up for some classes today, and no problem. And then on my way, I, I stopped at Coker, and I said, you know, I don't really know what happened first. I don't know if I asked for a job or she offered me a job, but a job materialized on that day. And, you know, Judy was all about education, so I, I, I want to say I probably asked for the job because um, she's well-educated and she understands the, you know, the importance of having uh, fallback and, and being worldly and, you know, she writes beautifully. Um, but it just seemed like the right time and, and, and she said, you know what, if you want a job, you got a job. And I came home and I... My parents like, hey, you know, get all the classes you want. I said, well, I got a job. And they, they were very disappointed and they were very uh, concerned because they're not horse people. And their concern was that I would be in the lower levels and I'd be struggling and my passion wouldn't really correlate to a career. Um, rightfully so. You know, I mean, they, they wanted me to be educated and they wanted, you know, big dreams for me. And I think I probably, in the moment, disappointed them. Um, that was the start of my journey, anyway. Well, it sounds like it was the right choice for you, It certainly. worked out. Yeah. It worked out. I'm sure they're very proud of you now. Yes, it worked <laughs> yeah. out. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned winning USCT finals, how that kind of put you on the map. But you certainly had way more competitive su success than that. You, you know, competed in two World Cup finals. Yeah. And um, you won the bronze medal at the Pan Ams. Right. Um, what kind of... What made you decide to move from competing to teaching? I don't know that it was like this subconscious decision. I, I knew from an early age that, you know, the way I understood the sport is that 
in order for opportunities to happen for myself, I had to basically make other people happy. You know, I had to provide a, a good service. So, you know, teaching was my job or part of my makeup at Coker right from the beginning. You know, in those years of that success, you know, in the same year that I had success at the Pan Am Games, um, I had a uh, my first student win an equitation final. And so it kind of went hand in hand right from the beginning. And I just knew that that's kind of, in my eyes, that's how it worked in America, you know, that um, things could happen for me if I would provide a good service for other people. And so at a young age, I kind of wanted, you know, I dreamed big and I wanted all of it. And so I knew right away that the teaching was a huge part. And that was a huge part of, of the business at Coker. I mean, it was a, you know, junior-based barn where kids came and tried to go to the finals. And, um, and so that's what I knew. And, um, and so I learned that craft right away. And I enjoyed it. I have to say I really did enjoy it. And it's all that I've ever really done was to, you know, show myself and train all in the same day. Um, and I found it very rewarding. Um, and I think that the transition started to sort of slowly change probably when I opened up my own business um, because I understood that I had to really make ends meet and I knew that I had to have a real strong training business. Um, and so with that, you know, probably cut into some time for me to compete on my own and probably cut into some resources to buy my own horses. You know, it seemed really daunting to be able to write checks for Grand Prix horses when I needed to put up new fencing and buy new jumps and, you know, all of those things. Um, and so I, I, it probably just went sort of that direction. And then at some point, probably in my early 30s, I was having a lot of back trouble, and so riding all day was really difficult. And it just, I never stopped riding. I, I, I mean, I, you know, here at Washington, I, you know, I'm riding in the middle of the night, and I, I ride a lot of horses, and um, I just started slowly stepping away from competing. Yeah. Um, I for sure feel that my success wouldn't be the same if I had never competed at the level that I'm trying to teach and in the rings that I'm trying to teach. Um, you know, someone said, you know, what's my favorite part of this? I mean, I get just as much joy as, as doing a good rider on a small pony as doing a top rider in the Grand Prix. And everywhere in between. Um, I don't think there's, you know, I never let my business get one-dimensional. I feel very, very comfortable going to the ring in the hunters, jumpers, and equitation. And I think that's has served us well, and I think that's why many of my students have gone on to become top professionals in, in our sport. Um, because I, you know, surrounded them by all of the disciplines, and they did all the disciplines themselves, and I don't think they're really very different. Um, and so I think that that motto has served me well. And, and you just mentioned, um, you know, opening your your training business, um, and that was Heritage Farm that you bought in 1994 with your yeah. brother. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and why you decided to do that and kind of how you took that property from what it was to what it is now? So the whole time that I was working at Coker, my brother, was, had played a role. Um, because of our age difference, for a long time I would say he played kind of a fatherly role. Um, and 
you know, mentor and, um, but we always knew deep down that we were going to do this together, that we just, we had a very, very special bond and this was our passion and when the opportunity was there to purchase a property um, in Westchester in a great location, an existing facility that kind of checked all the boxes for us, we did everything that we could to make that happen. Um, we were overextended, you know, but we just, we had each other and we had this belief that if we worked hard at something we loved, it was going to work out for us. And it did. And a few people helped us and, you know, bridged us, you know, loans. And, you know, we just leveraged ourselves to, I mean, it's crazy to what we did, but it was the best thing that we've ever done. And I would say, because I'm incredibly close with Judy after all these years, that I learned how to run a business from her. I also learned the importance of owning my own facility and being grounded um, and having a, a real base and not being transient. I mean, those are things that she, without even saying it, taught me and instilled in me. And so I think that even though at the end it's not easy to say goodbye, she was proud and she knew that I was making the right decision for myself. Um, and so our relationship, you know, 35, 40 years later is, is so strong because I never forgot that, you know, she made that happen and, um, you know, it's just been incredible. What would you say has contributed to your success? I think I'm a product of a good system. I, I don't think that I'm the world's most gifted rider. I think that I had to rely on a good, a good system and a good work ethic. And I think I taught myself and, and learned from others to be the best rider that I could be. Um, I think I'm probably a better teacher. Um, I'm a good listener. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm at the shows and I'm always learning and I'm taking in new ideas. Um, so I would say I'm open-minded. Um, I also know that to be good at anything, you got to put in 10,000 hours. And I'm a product of that system, you know, work ethic and, um, you know, one foot in front of the other. And I have a very steady personality. And I think that that has been a huge um, bonus. I, I don't know what the word, you know, I, I attribute a lot of the big successes to be that in the championship setting, that I remain the same, that I remain calm. And I think that when the emotions are very, very high, I, I have a way of keeping that very calm for everyone. And I think that's why my students have succeeded for years and years in, in, in all of these different championships. Um, you know, so I don't want to say that that's been luck. I, I think, you know, luck is once in a lifetime and multiple, you know, times. I, that's from that good system, you know, of being over-prepared. You know, I was a kid that didn't want to go to school if they didn't have their homework done. You know, was I a geek? A geek? Probably, you know, and, you know, a nerd. But I think people would say that they, they probably thought I was very smart in school. But again, 
I was book smart. You know, I did my homework. I read the pages. I, I did the work. So smart, I'm not sure about smart. A worker, you know, definitely a worker. Um, and I think that that's my teaching style. I think that my students know they can count on me. I've had many students that did not thrive in other good, good systems, other good programs. And I don't know, I just, I think I, they noticed that I saw something in them, just like I think Judy saw something in me, and it ignited this spark, and they, they went very, very far. So I think that there's a human connection, which I think if people were trying to criticize my program, they would probably say, hey, it's so big, and there's so many kids, and you get lost in the shuffle. But I think the opposite is true. I think that the, the kids that ride with me, they, they feel a special connection, and they know that I'm going to do whatever it takes to have them ready and to find them the best horse. And, um, and you know what? I think that all boils down to fear. I think that I've always been afraid to either show up unprepared at school or that I was going to show up at any show and win nothing. And I think all successful people, the common thread for many is fear. And I, I think that if the fear goes away, the winning probably stops. And someone recently just came to work for us, and it was pouring down rain before the USCT finals. And I was out there jumping jumps and trying different bits and just going in and out. And I was riding all day. And, and they thought, God, you know, what made you do that today? And I thought, because I, I can't bring myself to go to the event and feel like I wasn't prepared. If I go and I don't succeed, I know that I tried my hardest. I don't think I did it perfectly. The perfect show for me is when I bring everybody and everybody rode to the best of their ability. But usually what happens is someone or a few people do very well and a few people do okay and a few people do poorly. And so I'm always thinking, God, how could I have had this work out so everybody did well? And that's the numbers game, you know? That's like the day that every horse is healthy and sound when you've got 80 to 100 horses, is a miracle day, you know? Um, so to me, that's the good day, when everybody, everybody, you know, gets to the regionals, and everybody gets a ribbon, and everybody did their personal best. That's the good day. Um, and so I think that when the fear goes away, then I know it's probably time for me to slow down or do something different, you know? I think that's, that's it for me. And you touched on this a little bit, but um, you're known to be really great at matching riders with the right horses. How, how do you do that? Do you have a system for that, or is it more of a feeling? I think it's a feeling, and I think that comes from my, my, my own riding. You know, I ride, and I ride every day, and I know the feeling that I like. Um, you know, I know it works for me, and so I think I try to find that for, for others. And I think what I've done well is I think I've matched a lot of horses and riders together at all different budgets. And I think that, that that's a real skill. Um, again, I'm not afraid to look under every rock and around every corner, and I think that's part of that as well. I'm also not afraid to follow my hunch. If I try a horse somewhere and I like it, I can't get it out of my head, and I just if, if a horse gets in my brain, then I'm, I don't settle until I end up with the horse. 
Um, I figure out how to get it bought or buy it myself. And so a lot of the champions, most of the champions I made, you know, I found them and I bought them at six years old and I brought them along and I found their way. You know, it is a numbers game, not going to kid anybody. You know, for every five that I buy, you know, you hope one's a superstar and two are average and, you know, a few don't, don't cut it and they, they get lesser jobs. But, um, and if I make a mistake, it, it's, I don't harp on it. You know, it just, if I fail, you know, I, 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 I don't beat myself up, but I, I just, and how, do I, how do I fix this? How do I make this work? And I, I think that, that's what it is. You know, I'm a, I'm a worker. I'm a workhorse, you know, in my, um, I think that's been my success. Do you have kind of a favorite training exercise that you work on with students a lot? You know, I think because when I grew up at, at Coker, she would call them, you know, every day or every, we would jump what she would call puppy jumps, which are her, her phrase for little fences. Um, we have Cavalettis in the ring, and I would say that that's pretty much a, a staple, you know, every day, you know, whether they're on the lowest setting or the highest setting, that, that simulation of stride control and practicing timing and track, I think that that's probably the staple. Um, I often feel that the course gives the lesson. So the course that I have in the ring, you know, is very thought out and changes a lot. Um, I, I call it changing the furniture. Um, because I think that the course gives the lesson. You know, if, if, if you have the course set up a certain way, you know, you just give them the right diagram and, and it, it teaches the lesson. So I think that that's probably the, the staple. Um, and, and what do you think is the hardest part of the sport, for you at least? The hardest part, I think, is that it has become year-round with no break. You know, that, that's what I, to me that's the hardest part is, you know, I come from a real family, you know, we're Italian-American family and holidays are really important and being together is important. And so I, I, never, I never go to a horse show on a holiday. You know, I've tried to have some boundaries. Um, I am married now, which I'm proud to say, to a man that is not in the horse business. And so I also have to have some time to, you know, uh, nurture my relationship. Um, and so I am all in, but I, I think what I've learned in my 35 to 40 plus years of doing this is that there has to be some ba balance. And I'm always struggling to find balance for the horses, for my students, and, and for myself. What are some of the things that you find balance in? Maybe some other interests or hobbies or things that you like to do with your husband? You know, we like to go, you know, we live an hour outside of New York City. Um, for 10 years, I owned an apartment and uh, spent a lot of time in New York, which was probably the best investment I ever made in um, in myself, you know, culturally, um, to expose myself to, you know, the arts and theater and the beautiful parks. Um, my partner, uh, Ramon, is an avid runner. 
Um, and he, one of the, I would say, um, one of our conflicts is that, you know, he runs the New York City Marathon, which runs the same day as the McClay Championships. Um, and that's never going to change, I don't think. And so growing up in New York as a child, you know, his dream of running the marathon and having people cheer him on was really big for him. And then as long as we've been together, I've yet to see him finish the New York City Marathon. And so I've seen him run many races um, and I've been to many finish lines, but as a New Yorker, I've yet to see him compete and finish the, what is the most important to him. So, but we get that there's balance and he gets that that's important to my career. What, what advice would you give to your younger self? That it was okay to dream big. Um, I dr I, I've always been a, a real dreamer. You know, I, I really believed that all the opportunities that were out there were not just for other people. Um, you know, did I think that as a you know, gay man at 52 that I could be married and have children. I don't have children, but the, the possibility of having children. Um, no, I didn't think that that existed um, or was going to exist, um, you know, in, in, for me. And so, you know, I, I think I, I had big dreams and I'm, I'm happy that everybody around me supported them and nurtured them but that I wasn't afraid to dream big for myself. And so, and that it's all gonna be okay. And I was, all the work and all of that, that, I, that it was worth every bit of it, the sacrifice, the efforts, um, so. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me, Andre. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and thanks again to the sponsor of this episode, Cosequin. Join us again in two weeks. Upcoming conversations are with Olympic show jumper Laura Kraut, World Equestrian Games team gold medalist Adrian Sternlicht, and top equitation and hunter trainer Frank Madden. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.